Everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, Really special show today. Occasionally, I do hosting work for Live Talks Los Angeles. It's a it's usually a live event in front of an audience. I've hosted um, many people um, over the past couple of years, and last weekend I talked to Governor Andrew Cuomo from New York here for the event and. We are going to play that for you guys on today's podcast. So that's going on today. Um, so short way in. Hope everybody's doing well out there. Man, not much, not much time to the election. I'll have a, I'll have a nice way in next week uh, for a show right before the election. But guys, we're days. We're almost hours away. So I hope everybody's out there voting, pre-vote, plan to vote, vote safely. <laughs> you know, make sure you feel everything out you're supposed to feel. And I will tell you my prediction next week, too, because um, my spidey sense is pretty, pretty high right now. Remember last last time I predicted Trump and I wasn't happy about it. I'll tell you what I'm ready to predict this time. But I'll tell you that next week. And lastly, guys, please download Peacock if you haven't I'm really having a good time on that show uh, called Will Moore on Peacock. If you have not seen it, Peacock is free. So you don't have to worry about signing up for another streaming service. You can always pay to get rid of commercials and that sort of thing. But at, at the free level, it's great. Sign up for Peacock to see the show. This week, we're talking about the media. Uh, some really good guests, too. We have Bradley Whitford and Soledad O'Brien. Anyhow, that's it. My talk with uh, Governor Cuomo is coming right up, and uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus. View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Thanks, Dad. Welcome, Governor. Appreciate you. uh, Kind kind of being live talks LA, kind of being Los Angeles, you know, <laughs> in this new environment. Uh, appreciate you coming on and talk about what's going on now. I'll give a shout out to your book here, American Crisis, everyone can see. Um, uh, before we get into the book, of course, like we're right in the middle, it seems like of another surge, it seems like, uh, not just in this country, but kind of globally. Do you have a kind of a, a take on what's happening right now? Was Was this were, were you kind of expecting this kind of thing? Yes. Uh, well, first, uh, Ted, thank you very much for having me. Larry, uh, thank you for doing this. I'm a big fan of yours, so it's a oh. pleasure to be with you. 
and and we do claim you as a part New Yorker. Where maybe course. it's only forty nine percent, but we're <laughs> going to okay. take it. <laughs> you, can't, you can't take New York away from me, man. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, your, your point is exactly right, Larry. We are, uh, we're looking at a surge all across the country, all around the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's worse about this is uh, it was all predicted. You know, if, if we didn't have a federal government that was frankly in denial, uh, the scientists all said it was going to get worse in the fall. What happens in the fall, the schools open, colleges open, people go inside, congregate settings increase. And the viral transmission rate goes up. And that is exactly what is happening uh, in many states across the country and countries across the globe. So, uh, you know, I actually follow the science and I believe the scientists when they said it was going to get worse in the fall. So uh, we've made some preparations uh, and knock wood uh, was still uh, it hasn't gone up in New York state, but uh, it's it's going to be a difficult period. Yeah. Governor, what what's some of the strategy um, that may be a little different this time because the first time there were so many unknowns, you know, now we, we kind of know some, some things about it, you know, has your strategy changed uh, right now for the state of New York? And also is there a different strategy for Manhattan as we know, because it's so densely populated? Well, the, you're right, Larry, the, it's, it's incredible how unprepared we were uh, when this, when this virus first hit. Everything about it is incredible. It's incredible how incompetent a federal government can be. I'll tell you the truth. You know, you, you grow up with this myth that there's some professionals in charge and if God forbid there was a real crisis, you, you have some uh, repository right. of intelligence. The, everything about this virus. Uh, the president said it was China virus, China virus, China virus, look the virus. I looked at China. The virus actually came to this country predominantly through Europe. It came from Italy and France and Spain. It had left China, went to Europe, and then came from from Europe. Uh, Operationally, we were totally unprepared. Uh, Mm -hmm. Testing, we didn't have the capacity, we didn't have the gowns, we didn't have the masks. I mean, we didn't have anything. And now, many states are better prepared just because operationally, uh, they've had seven months. And uh, in New York, we're, we're in, in better shape and we're more sophisticated about how we do this. We do more testing in New York State than any state in the country pro rata. Uh, I'm obsessive about testing. And I think there was a psychological basis for it. For so many weeks early on, nobody could tell you anything. Uh, yeah, everything was so anecdotal. Beautiful. Oh, it was yeah. crazy. And yeah. all the experts, even global experts, they would all say, well, Governor, I think this might happen. I think this. But no one really had facts. Testing is the only thing that gives you facts, okay? So we test a lot. We do about 150,000 tests per day. And mm-hmm. we can now test down to the block level. So. We don't need to take statewide actions or regional actions or county actions or city actions. We're now taking actions in these very small geographic areas that are the focus of a cluster of cases. And Larry, it can come from uh, one, we have one sweet 16 party that generated cases. 
Uh, there was that wedding in Long Island early on. Yes. Remember yes. The, the spreader. It was so, and it felt so mysterious, you know. Yes. So we yeah. target these very small geographic areas and then put restrictions in place very quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we don't relax them until that specific geographic area gets better because that's where they're like embers in dry grass, right? As soon as you yeah. see the ember, you run and you stamp it out. Uh, so we have, we have some uh, what we call red zones, these little geographic areas that we jump on right away. But statewide, mm -hmm. we're about 1% uh, infection rate, which is uh, basically one of the lowest in the country. So mm -hmm. statewide, we're good. But, you know, you have to every day, you have to be diligent. Yeah. And you talked about testing, which, you know, it's very important. You know, uh, now that I'm back in production, we get tested, you know, all the time as well. But I'm also concerned about mitigation, you know, and, uh, you know, Fauci talked about that. You have to do both. Right. You have to test. And as we saw with, you know, our friend Chris Christie, who said he was doing all the right things. And he said one time he wasn't concerned about mitigation, how important that is. New York City, to me, mitigation feels so important in New York City because people ride on the subways, you know, they're so close. Do you think they'll be seeing another lockdown possibly this winter or something like that? I would be surprised if we had to do that. We are doing these targeted geographic clusters, like a little cluster in Brooklyn, little cluster in Queens. But if, you, if you're diligent on the clusters, you don't get to a citywide lockdown because mm -hmm. you stamp it out as soon as you catch it. You just have to have that detection device and then you have to move quickly with the mitigation. See, Larry, the mm -hmm. mitigation is hard for the political process. Yes, Why? definitely. Yeah, look, let's be <laughs> honest. They don't work. Science and politics and all these things don't necessarily work together. Yeah. That's exactly right. But look, a politician, uh, generalize, they want people to like them. They want people yeah. to be happy, right? I want you to vote for me. I don't want you to be right. mad at me. All these mitigation standards, it's all bad news, right? Uh, yeah. You can't have people in a restaurant. You can't have people in a bar. You can't have a movie theater. You can't have this. It's all bad news. And people are tired, COVID fatigue, uh, and they don't want to hear it. So it's hard for the political system to actually do the right thing and do right. it fast. You know, the thing is speed. You see a cluster, you have to jump on it. That's you right. wait two, three days because your, your advisors are arguing about, you know, the consequence, the political consequences. Uh, it's too late, but you have to get yourself there. I'm, I just got sued by the Catholic Church. I got sued by synagogues. I got sued yeah. by movie theater owners. Uh, I got, you know, it's, but you just have to get to a different place I mean, where you're saying I'm doing the right thing. Part of what you're doing, you, I feel like you just kind of have to shrug being a target off because you're just going to be the bad guy, you know. And uh, I mean, there's really nothing you can do about that. But I did want to talk. I wanted to uh, see. I keep showing this so people can see. <laughs> but uh, your book. Your book is fascinating to me because it's it's kind of this diary snapshot. You know, you kind of write it in diary form and it's we're kind of snapped back 
to what happened. And I thought it might be good to kind of kind of go through this timeline a little bit, if that's okay with you, you know. Please. Um, let's talk about the beginnings of it again. You mentioned it a little bit, of, but you're right. There were so many confusing things going on. And, um, and it was fascinating to see you write about, I'll call her patient zero, you know, the woman who first came in from Iran or whatever it was, you know. So what, what was your feeling in that moment, Governor? Did, did it feel like, oh, this isn't so bad, or mm, this looks like, at least this is better than Ebola, as you point out, you know, it looks like this is contained. I think we're gonna be good. Were you feeling that? Or were you feeling, oh, whoa, this, <laughs> this is not good, you guys. Where were you personally in that time? Well, it, there was an evolution, right? Yeah. Uh, frankly, I did not know that there was gonna be such a disinformation campaign from the federal government. I was in, in the Fed, yeah. I was in mm -hmm. the federal, I was in the Clinton administration. I was secretary of uh, housing and urban development. Uh, so I was down there for eight years. And mm -hmm. there's politics, but then there's a line, which is basic truth and information. I really believe the White House, certainly in retrospect, they lied uh, about what they knew and when they knew it, right? But I didn't, I didn't even think that this administration was capable of that as early on. So when they were saying uh, it's going to be, a f and the CDC, the actual health agencies, normally are not political agencies. But mm -hmm. my first, I believed them at first that this is going to be manageable and we can handle it. And mm -hmm. when COVID was not as deadly as Ebola, because I had gone through Ebola, uh, Ebola, if it spread, the mortality was much higher. So yeah. at first it seemed like it was going to be okay. But then when we got to our patient zero, the first uh, person who came back, mm -hmm. and we started to live through all these little connections and how mm -hmm. quickly panic started to set in and people started to get scared. Uh, and I felt, I felt the body politic panicking, mm -hmm. that's when it gets real. You know, in all these situations for me, worse than the emergency, I don't care if it's a hurricane, a flood, whatever it is, worse than the emergency is the panic that can set in. There's right. nothing worse than a panicked public. Mm -hmm. uh, you think of Manhattan, you think of eight million people trying to flee Manhattan. Just Picture the traffic and the chaos. All those, all those movies like Outbreak or <laughs> World of Worlds kind of show those scenarios, you know, in fiction form. But yeah, there's only so many arteries to, to move within, too. You know. But Larry, it, it would happen. I did when I was in the federal government. I did a lot of disasters. I've seen civilization go right out the window. You know, when people feel afraid for their life or they need to get home to be with their kids, mm -hmm. they will trample you, you know. Uh, when you have these dense urban environments, that is the real fear, panic mm -hmm. in a dense urban environment. So uh, I saw people start to react to that patient zero. She was on a plane, what plane, what seat? Right. Uh, did she take a cab? Did she take an Uber? Was she on the subway? What time was I on the same train? You know, it, it just exploded. And as governor, what, what are the first things that you do uh, when you know you're about to, you know there's a headwind coming, you know this is not just a case 
that's going to be simple. There's a headwind coming. What are some of the first steps as that executive of the state, the, some of the first things that you do, Governor? Well, the, the first is you want to get all the information possible. You want to know the facts, right? Just give me the facts. You can almost deal with anything in life if you know the facts, right? Uh, and that's what was bedeviling about this whole situation for months, by the way, not just for weeks. There were no facts, and the facts kept changing. Uh, Where were the facts primarily coming from? You had the World Health Organization. You had, uh, you had China, because it came from there. You had CDC, which was confusing, and you had our own president, as well as other heads of state who were dealing with it, too. Was there any place where it seemed like it was more reliable at, in those early days than any other? Because they all seemed to get discredited one by one, it seemed like. No, Larry, you're exactly right. And look, mm. I don't know who, who was actually right or wrong and what sure. was being filtered. And you don't really know. The president points at the World Health Organization. Uh, First of all, the World Health Organization is a private organization attached to the United Nations. It's mostly privately funded. The theory that we were dependent on the WHO for all our information is just bogus. We have the CDC, we have the Department of Homeland Security, we have NIH. These were supposed to be the agencies who watched just this. And the World Health Organization missed the past three viruses. You know, when yeah. you think we had SARS in 2002, we had MERS in 2012, we had dengue and swine flu and Ebola, they were all missed. SARS, MERS, COVID are all coronaviruses, all from China, all from wet poultry markets in China, all were missed by the global watchdogs. Mm -hmm. That goes back 20 years. We've had 20 years of misses, right? So it's, it's just incredible that uh, we didn't know where it came from, really. Well, first, that China had it, and maybe China was not fully forthright. It left China and went to Europe, and it was Big coming China, here from Europe. Wait, China wasn't fully forthright? <laughs> giving, I'm giving trying to be a little, a little. A little policy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be. The I keep it hundred. I keep it hundred percent real here, Governor. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to be the quintessential brash New Yorker. I'm trying to be a little California. You know? I understand. <laughs> Fully forthright. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you had that. Then it came from Europe, which mm -hmm. nobody knew about, and that was uh, reported as well, right? Yes. Oh, yes. We didn't, we didn't know that until like two months later. Oh, wow. Yeah. The way we figured that out was a New York hospital tested the virus and found out it was a different strain than the China virus. And it yeah. was a different strain that mutated in Europe. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't find that out until like April when Fauci and the CDC testified before Congress. Well, what's interesting to me is that I love how even travel has a Western bias, that people leaving China would only come to the United States. You know, it's like, you know, people leave China and go all over the world. Why would we think that this Western travel bias, that they would only be coming in this direction? There are other directions to leave China, you know. 
No, that's what I think is so incredible, Larry. I mean, just think about it. Our best yeah, like global think, experts. Yes, <laughs> but this virus could be anywhere. It's not just closing off California. Like, you know, it's the Japanese invading Pearl Harbor and we got to close off the, you know, the coast or something, you know. Um, no, that's yeah. in retrospect. That's what that's what's so incredible in retrospect. Right. You thought that China, we knew China had it last December. OK, mm-hmm. what did you we didn't we then do the China travel ban uh, January 29th. There's no European ban until March 16th. What mm-hmm. did you think was going to happen between December and March with that virus sitting in China? Of course, your point, it was going to travel all across the world. Governor, do you think, uh, you know, there's always conspiracy theories and all that stuff, but some people feel it could have been here earlier and we didn't know it. Some people go as far back as October, November. I don't know if that's true, but some people think it may have been New York in January or even December, you know, and people, because I, I didn't even know friends who said, man, I had this horrible flu. It could have been Corona. I'm not sure. Is there a possibility that, it could have been here way earlier than we know and could have just been silently going about its business because we know it does spread silently. Yeah, no, Larry, I'm with you. Look, if China had it in December, Mm -hmm. which means probably on the fully forthright theory, if they said they had it in December, they probably had it earlier, right? So if they have it earlier than December, yeah, for sure. I mean, how many people are going back and forth between China and the United States right. and other countries? Uh, I think it was here as early, certainly as February, maybe January. And mm-hmm. we had no idea because, see, if they, they were not looking for it. And if you don't look for it, you don't find it. It looks like pneumonia yeah. otherwise. Right. No one took it seriously as a th- threat of being a global pandemic. To me, it just looked like the way SARS looked like and and that. That's how I thought of it. I didn't take it seriously and probably until we got into late February when it was like, oh, shoot, this is something different. Yes. So from that from that, I mean, of course, I'm not a medical expert or anything, but as a layman, it didn't occur to be to have this kind of global pandemic potential. I agree 100 percent. So we never saw it coming. Then one of the big mistakes. there's no such thing as asymptomatic spread. We were told it spread from people who had symptoms. It was the sneezing, the coughing, mm-hmm. and that's how it spread. That was wrong. Right. You could have no symptoms and spread it. And we didn't find out that for a couple of months, which mm-hmm. means we were only testing people who had symptoms because that's what we were told. Yeah, and what's interesting is, you know, now that we've learned from Bob Woodward's book, it seems to imply, and I should probably listen to some of that again, that Trump, I'll say, had a sense, you know, that it was airborne early on. Is that your sense of what came out of that or or not? No, I mean, as, as a distinction to droplets, you know. Yes, yes. Look, uh, Woodward's book, I don't know if he specifically says airborne, but the president mm-hmm. is saying there uh, he knew it was going to be much worse. It was going to affect millions. That's what the White House Peter Navarro memo said in January. If you remember, there was a White House memo that Peter Navarro, who's a senior aide to the president, did saying mm-hmm. this is coming. It is going to affect millions. Uh, 
it laid it all out in January. And the White House ne- said, well, the president never saw the memo or they just brushed it right. off. Right, right, I right. think they knew. I think they knew all along and they just weren't saying it was this theory of denial. And that's been their theory from day one with this. Let's be honest. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When did you have your first conversations with the president about this? And did you have direct conversations or were they just group conversations? Oh, no, I had direct conversations. I know the president. He's a former New Yorker. Yes, uh, yes, yes, he is. Yes. So, <laughs> and look, he was a supporter of mine when he was in New yeah. York. He supported my father, who was governor before me. Right. Uh, I know his did family. Find, did you find Trump charming back in the day before he was in politics? Was he a charming figure in these political circles? Because he gave a lot of money to a lot of people, including the, the uh, Clintons and that kind of thing. Yeah. Charm is not the word I would use. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm searching for the right word. That was up. Yeah. Wait, I'm a comedian. Yeah. I can find another one. <laughs> yeah. You better, because it's not charm. I'll tell you that much. I was going to say, was he full of shit back then as he is? <laughs> <laughs> Look, he was, uh, he was a, a tabloid character, right? Yeah. right. Uh, sort of a New York eccentric. Um, New York is a democratic place. So he was a democratic donor, uh, because, uh, that's what you do in New York. But, uh, it was almost the concept of him being president mm-hmm. was always laughable. You were at the, uh, you've done the Washington correspondence dinner. There was a dinner where president Obama mocked the idea of <laughs> Trump that. being president. Yes, remember that? Yes, yeah, Seth Meyers hosted it. It's very famous. Yeah. 
And Trump was in the audience. I know. Uh, and and the whole room laughed like it was just an impossible idea. Yeah. Well, joke was on us. Arguably Obama's uh, best and worst speech at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so so in your first conversations with Trump, so you have kind of a relationship with him, but um, like how serious is that conversation? Does it feel like there's a lot of politics in the air the way that it normally is with Trump? Or does he actually feel like, okay, all right, Governor, what's going on? What can we do? Was it was it working in the beginning and then got bad type of thing? How, how, how were those first meetings? It was always the public relations aspect of it. Mm -hmm. That's how he was processing all the information. There was never really a substantive discussion of the facts, the policy, mm -hmm. uh, none of that. It was all the public relations of it. At first, the federal government was very aggressive in handling it. Mm -hmm. uh, right out of the box, the CDC uh, insisted that they do all the testing. They wouldn't allow any state testing. Mm -hmm. And that was the first fight I had with them because the CDC was slow. All the tests yeah. had to go through Atlanta. Very slow, yeah. Yes. So, but they insisted on being in charge. And then we, we had, and I spoke to the president about, uh, you should let the states test also. Mm -hmm. We can take the CDC uh, protocol and just let our labs run it and expend, uh, extend the uh, capacity. But that was a whole back and forth for weeks because they were proprietary about controlling it. Mm -hmm. They then found out what it was all about, Larry, and they did a 180. Uh, and then the president winds up saying, uh, it's up to you, governors. Uh, you take it, you handle it, and I'll be here behind you. you a call if you need any help. Otherwise, it's up to the uh, governors, which I think was a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, he does totally abdicated the federal role. And the federal government has tools that a state does not have. You know, states don't do global health pandemics. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not in our portfolio. Uh, I can't do, I don't have what's called the Defense Production Act. I can't force a company to make gowns and masks mm -hmm. and nasal swabs. That was all federal power. Right. And he just uh, deferred, not even deferred, he just handed the whole task to the governors yeah. and adopted this posture of, uh, it's up to you, uh, call me if you want uh, the Army Corps of Engineers sent in. Yeah, it seemed like he was hoping it would go away. I mean, as he was saying by Easter and everything. Um, if you would, though, for us, uh, Governor, um, what, what in your mind would be the proper things for the federal government to have been doing in a situation like that? And what are the things that the state should be in charge of? Because I think the American people would really like to hear that, you know, because we're about to come up to this again. We don't know who's going to be president. And we want to know, what should we be asking the gov our governments to do? Because it, it would be unfair for asking the federal government to do something that they really shouldn't be doing or to not be asking the state to have the powers that they surely should be using, you know? You're 100% right. Uh, I go through this in the book at length. I literally do a whole blueprint of the federal versus state. Because I was on the federal side. I've been on the state right. side. And they have different set of powers. Uh, there are, there's a big international supply chain 
and acquisition and procurement role to all of this. Uh, states cannot do international supply chains. Okay. And a lot of this comes back to that. The federal government has something called the Defense Production Act, where they right. can say to a private sector company, I need you to produce this. If the federal government did basically the procurement and resources, uh, help pro procure for me the supplies I will need. A state is a frontline operator. I'll take the front line. I'm the hands and the feet of the operation. But you have to provide me with the gowns and the masks and the reagents from China. Mm -hmm. You at least be the supply line for me, federal government. Uh, use your Defense Production Act and make sure if I'm the state and I'm the frontline troops that you're, you're at least providing me with the necessary material. That should yeah. have been their role. I also think the federal government should have uh, cleared the way politically Mm -hmm. and made it clear that if you hit this threshold, then you should start closing down. Okay. In other words, rather than leave it to all these mayors and all these county officials and all these uh, governors, I think 2% is the right number. I think 5% is the right number. Mm -hmm. I, they could have been helpful politically by just saying, Here's our federal thresholds. Clear guidelines California, that people can see and there's no debate about it. And Yes. You know. So the local official doesn't have to take the political heat, frankly. Right. And you don't get five different local officials with five different opinions. Right. right. They could have done that also. I'll tell you where you're going to see it come up. Mm -hmm. The vaccines. Yeah. The vaccines. Uh. It is. They're going to make this same mistake. Uh, well, we're going to have vaccines in December and then we're going to give them out. Oh, really? This is like redux of testing and PPE and everything we just went through. Think of this for scale. Uh, New York, I told you I'm an obsessive uh, tester. Mm -hmm. In seven months, we've done 12 million tests, more pro rata than any state in the country. 12 million in seven months. A test is basically a swab uh, to the nose, right? And I, I'm now telling have, And now they have the saliva tests, which yes. you know, are even more non-intrusive, which is good. You know? Yes, but I'm telling you, I worked every day, I've turned every lever, we get 12 million done. Wow. A vaccine, vaccine would require 20 million people get vaccinated twice, mm -hmm. two doses. That's 40 million right. vaccinations. Seven months, I've only done 12 million. How do you expect me to do 40 million? How? Uh, this has to be, the, most of the uh, proposed vaccines have to be refrigerated to a level that you need special refrigeration equipment and the federal government, once again, is just like, oh, no, we're going to give you vaccines. We're going to make them available. And then just somehow, magically, the administration of this uh, and the education about this, you guys are going to have to take care of. What else? Uh, yeah, go ahead. That's it. I was going to say the unfortunate situation, even like if Biden becomes president, that President Trump has fostered this such a non-trust 
to a certain sector of people, I'll say, not everybody, but this non-trust of government to be telling you what to do. I feel like a whole mess of people are not even going to want to take a vaccine. They don't even want to wear a mask. Like, how are we going to get you know, people to, to get vaccines and do the right thing? Yeah, well, here's my plan, Larry. You take the vaccine. I'll call you two weeks later. You tell me how you did. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. This, I mean, I, it's just crazy, you know, uh, some of the things. Uh, Governor, also, uh, what's fascinating about your book, too, is when you see the numbers rising in the chapters, you know. And I wanted to ask you on a personal level, um, and I appreciate how personal you've been uh, just let me just say this on behalf of a part-time New Yorker, but on a full-time American, I appreciate all of your daily briefings. You have to know, Thank governor, you. in some of the darkest times, I'm sorry, I'm a little emotional about this, but in some of the darkest times, we appreciated you being there and being just being a fucking good leader, man. Sorry for my language, Thank you. Thank but you. just being smart for us and being there, you know, jokes about your family, all that stuff. I apologize for getting emotional here. But it really meant a lot to us out there, Governor. So I just wanted to thank you personally for that. But um, what I wanted to ask you personally was, did you have an overwhelming moment? Because there was one chapter where I saw the numbers swelled on that day. And I could only imagine, was there a thought that, oh, shit, are we even doing this right? Like, what's going on, you know? And how do you deal with that um, from a leadership standpoint, you know? Um, when you have to get in front of people and you're facing that kind of grim news. You do it because you have to do it. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds simplistic. I didn't have the strength to do it. Yeah. I didn't have the, I didn't, some mornings I didn't have the will to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you're right. It's not just, it was all, it was informational, but it was more emotional. Right. And you, you have to get up there and you have to handle it right, Larry. You know, you can't mm -hmm. get up there and say, oh, my God. Right, uh, right. <laughs> right. You know, which yeah. is how I was feeling a lot of days. Uh, and then you have to you have to keep it right. And then you get in the, mm -hmm. the press is asking you questions afterwards. And I wanted to do it every day because I wanted to say to people, you're dealing with this every day. Mm -hmm. I'll deal with it every day. We'll do it together. At least we'll do it together. Mm -hmm. You be there for me. I'll be there for you. And we're going down a road. We've never gone. We're out of control. We're all scared. Uh, take my hand. Let's do it together. I'll be here every day. Uh, tune in, don't tune in, but just know I'm there and I'm going to give you the straight story, no spin, no BS, and you're going to get it every day. So I wanted to do it every day, but, uh, and I did, but I tell you, it was just, uh, I pray, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. I'm a person of faith and uh, it was just bigger than me. I would say to myself, you know, it's not really about me. I feel this. I feel this. I feel this. Okay, put it all aside because it's not about you. You have a role to play. You have a job to do. You took a responsibility. Uh, and 
step up and uh, handle your responsibility. Uh, it's indulgent that you feel tired or you feel right. scared. That's indulgent. Like I we all heard, do. <laughs> yeah. I sort of yes. heard my, my father was a very principled, strong personality. Yeah, and was. I could hear him saying that uh, to be provocative because he was also fundamentally sweet. But he would say, mm -hmm. uh, oh, you feel that? That's how you feel, Larry? It's not about you. I don't care if you're mm -hmm. tired. I don't care if you're upset. I don't care if you're scared. Uh, you took an oath. You ran for office. You asked for this job. You stand up and you do it. That was, that's what he would say in a loving way. It would sound okay. harsh, but it was in a loving way. <laughs> yeah. And I heard that. I heard that mm -hmm. every morning because I did not want to get out of that bed some mornings. Sure. You know, first of all, the mornings, the, the night didn't stop until 4 a.m. You know, you only slept a couple of hours. But yeah. there were some mornings that I just didn't understand how we were going to get through this. How important was it to have your daughters with you? Um, I'm sure that made a difference just to have some well-being at that time. That made a major difference. First mm -hmm. of all, I didn't have to worry about where they were, right? Right. Yeah. It took that off the table, right? Because otherwise, a big part every day, you'd be worrying, where is she? Is she doing something stupid? So uh, them being there was helpful on that level. And they were, they were great. It, that was great. They gave me a whole energy. They gave me uh, a, a sense of humor about it, a sense yeah. of humanity about it. They all worked on it together. So we all were doing it every day. Uh, and it was special for me because my kids now, they're 25, 25, 22. So they, they flew the nest, you know. Oh, yeah. And they, this was them coming home in a way they never would yeah. uh otherwise so that was that was that was very helpful that was very helpful i don't yeah. know if i could have done it without them frankly because they really did give me energy yeah it's interesting that this tough time really has redefined family for a lot of us you know um so for, for some people it's been a good thing for some people not so good you know of course it's been terrible for the people who lost family, but once again, it's just showed us how important and how fleeting these things are. You know, when you brought up your dad, I thought of, I loved your dad. He was awesome, man. I was such a big fan. I wanted him to run for president so bad, you know, because if he came from that old school politics where you know that when he was speaking to you, you felt like he was speaking directly to you and it wasn't just politicking, it was inspirational. It lifted you up, you know? I feel like we don't have as much of that anymore, you know? Um, like Biden's a good man and everything. I, I, I like Biden, but I don't get what I used to get from people like your dad, you know? I, is, does that exist anymore in politics? That kind of, of way that politics connected to people where it elevated at the same time? You know, I would like to say not as much, not yeah. as much, certainly. My father was a special guy, not just because he's my old man, but he was brilliant, he was principled, and he was tough, 
Larry, he was going to yeah. call it straight. He didn't care <laughs> if you liked yeah. him, if you didn't like him. He was going to call it straight. And he that. was. Yeah. Yes. And he was. He was optimistic. And he was a believer in people. And he did believe we could be better and we would be better together. He was inspirational because it was all genuine. It was, he was 100% yeah. authentic. What he would say to that TV screen is the same thing he would say to me when we were alone. There was no differentiation. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, now everyone is, uh, it seems in politics, they're all a little too slick, a little too managed, a little too manicured. My old man was just right in your face all the time. Here's who I am. This is what I believe. You know, take it, you leave it. <laughs> you know? Do it, you will. Um, yeah. Governor, we're going to go to some questions in a second, but I just had a, one more question for you. So you know, I've heard you say that you, you're kind of writing this at halftime was one of the thoughts, you know? Yes. I'm concerned. What if, what if we're in a hockey analogy? What if this is the first period, you know? Like, uh, we don't know you know, what this is going to be. Do you have, what would be your advice to whoever is going to be in charge of this? Like, what, what, what is the biggest thing that someone should be doing going forward, whether it's the executive of the United States or another governor in your position? I think it's going to be sloppy between now through January. Mm -hmm. uh, because fall is going to turn to winter and more people are going to, going to go indoors. It's going to be the flu season. I think yeah. you're going to see more of a spike. And I think this divided nation with the schizophrenia that we have is actually allowing the virus to grow, right? There are just, you could have controlled the virus if you all agreed to control the virus. Mm -hmm. And we're too divided as a nation to agree. That's why when they made that mask a political symbol, uh, right. they did a disservice to the entire country. So I think you're going to see it continue to grow. The next question is going to be the vaccine right. and not the vaccine development, because science will do that when science does it. But the administration of it. And then when you touched on, Larry, the credibility of the government to tell people you should take this. And remember mm -hmm. how confusing this is going to be. There's going to be a number of vaccines. Right. So the first company that develops one, uh, some people will take that. The next company that comes online, different vaccine, you take that. Mm -hmm. Third company is going to come online. And then you have all these questions. Well, should I wait for uh, Johnson & Johnson? Should I wait for Pfizer? Should I wait for Moderna? I heard this test is better than that test. But this isn't over until there's a vaccine. And it's not over until there's a vaccine that is administered. And I think that's going to be much more complicated than people think and much more controversial. And I think that's going to be the first task in order for President Biden, I hope, is getting us through that vaccination period. And where do we put the CDC in all of this? Um, it feels like they've been batted around a bit, too. You know, um, it almost seems like they're gun shy to, to make proclamations that are just science, which is very bizarre, you know, when they kind of took back their airborne message, which I didn't understand at all. 
You know, are we losing the CDC as an authoritative voice, or how how can we how can we get the public to to see that organization for what it's supposed to be? You know, a very reliable, informative, nonpartisan group. Well, Larry, it's only as good as the head of it, yeah. and I think that's what we saw. I, they are all afraid of the president. Yeah. Uh, and look, he is. You say something he doesn't like, he'll fire you, right? Uh, look at the dynamic between the president and Fauci. He's afraid yeah. to fire Fauci because Fauci, frankly, has too much credibility. Yeah. But he he's denied the science from day one. He's lied about it. The president. He now says he disagrees with Fauci on the science. I mean, well, who was he to disagree with Fauci on the science? And I think the CDC has been politicized. I think the same is true for that whole uh, White House task force. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a total political operative as the spokesperson for HHS. I mean, total political operative. Yeah. So I think Joe Biden, you appoint the right person there, the right scientist with credibility. I mean, if he could get a Dr. Fauci or someone like that. Yeah, you know. that'd be great. Uh, well, let's, yeah. go into, let's go into some questions. Thanks oh. a lot, uh, Larry, and thanks, Governor. Uh, we have a lot of questions. I'll great. try to go through some of them here. Uh, first question, given all you have to do as the governor of New York, how did you find the time to write this book? <laughs> I know you've gotten that one, Governor, so we'll let yeah. you go. <laughs> the... If you, Larry was talking about how the book was structured. It's structured by the briefings every day. So I had the day-to-day -day briefings uh, and what I did. And more, it was going back and adding context to the briefings and the behind the scenes on the briefings. And for me, it was almost therapeutic to go through it mm -hmm. because I do think this is like halftime and I want to make sure... Are we learning everything we should have learned from the past? Let's go through it again. Let's watch the game tape. What can we learn? What did I miss? Uh, and because we still have to play a second half. So uh, I had the raw material from the briefings. And then I purposefully wanted to go through it again myself to make sure I didn't miss anything. I, I thought I heard you say in an interview, did your daughters talk you into doing this book? Uh, where did the my, idea come from initially? My daughter said a different point. My daughter <laughs> said, my daughters are bigger on social media. Uh, okay. And we had, there were 64 million people who tuned into the broadcast. And emails from around the world wanting more information and, uh, having follow-up questions about the briefings, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I mean, a phenomenal number. Yeah. So my daughters would say to me, uh, you know, this one's asking this question, this is asking this question. And I would say, well, tell them uh, you'll send them a tape of the briefing. And they said, we don't send tapes anymore, dad. We just, I said, okay, well, tell them your email. <laughs> well, nobody wants to have to watch right. 400 hours of briefings. Yeah. <laughs> And they suggested, you know, why don't you just do uh, a book on the lessons and the points? Because New York did have a unique experience and we did make unique progress. So you can share the lessons. Uh, so they, they, they came at it from that angle. Right. I would have, 
Larry and Ted. I would have gone through it anyway to make sure I didn't miss it, you know, because there was so much happening so fast. Yeah. Uh, and I am still so worried and anxious about what we have ahead of us. Yeah. That, that process of now let's just go through it all again and slow it down. And what should I have done? What could I have done? How do I replay this game? That was yeah. important to me. And I think there, there's a certain value to a snapshot as opposed to a look back. You know, snapshots give us a whole different feel for things. You know, you, you're closer to the moment, you know, and there's not always clarity when you're using snapshots, you know, different ways. It, I just find it fascinating in a different way, you know. Um, all right, Ted, what's our next one? Next question. Uh, Governor, what was the hardest decision you had to make uh, during the pandemic thus far? Uh, they were all hard. Hardest was closing down everything. Uh, New York closed down. The, the shutdown of all businesses, schools, etc. Because you knew uh, people's livelihoods were going to be ruined. Hmm. Uh, that was the hardest. I'll tell you the second tied with that, that nobody even realized it was a decision. Saying to the people of the state, this is very dangerous. It's life and death. You should stay home. New paragraph, essential workers, you have to go to work tomorrow. Mm. I thought you just said it's so dangerous. Everybody has to stay home. Yes. Everybody but you, you policeman, you bus driver, you train driver, you utility worker, you have to go to work because you're essential. And yes, it's dangerous, but you have to go. Uh, nobody ever focused on that decision. Now, you didn't really have an alternative, alternative, because if you want to talk about chaos, you turn on your light switch and the power doesn't come on. You go to the store and there's no groceries, groceries on the shelves. That's panic. So you needed those essential workers to show up. But what right did I have to ask them to show up, right? They're not big shots. They're not the high paid Wall Street types. Most of them are union workers, uh, middle class guys they had to put themselves in harm's way in a way nobody else did. They had to put themselves in harm's way so everybody else could stay home and be safe. That was tough for me to get my head around from a moral point of view because mm -hmm. it just seemed unfair to me. Uh, like the, the, the poorest people of society always pay the highest price for right. whatever the problem is. And as, and as a follow-up, Governor, how did you deal with um, the dichotomy of having to tell religious groups that it wasn't safe for them to gather versus the freedom of people to gather religiously? You know, I mean, not very messy issue as well. I know there were some issues with different groups, with some Jewish groups and some other groups of that. And, and I'm sure that was a tough moment as well, right? Oh, that is. And I've gotten sued by, by yes. the uh, religious groups because my point is a gathering, legally, a gathering is a gathering. 
You know, I don't care if you're gathering to play soccer or you're gathering as a fraternity or you're gathering as a religion. My public health law limits gatherings. And I've won in court. But it's just on a personal level, uh, it's miserable, you know. Uh, Catholic Church sued me. I'm Catholic. You know, well, I don't was, know if that's going to come. That was a long time coming, Governor. Let's be honest about that. Yeah, yeah well, I don't what well, <laughs> This is like the third suit. Let's put it. But I already had a long list, Larry, when yeah. I got up to the pearly gate to explain. Me, I'm Catholic as well. I understand how it works. <laughs> I had to explain marriage equality. I had to explain a woman's right to choose. I didn't need anything else on the list. There's a lot. Yeah. And uh, but there were many, many groups that were very angry about that, you know, um, and I'm sure for them. But like to me, that would be the most vexing because you want people to be safe, you know, but they're thinking I'm being safe by taking care of my soul. And I don't know how you argue that, you know, you don't you don't you don't. There's no good answer to any of these right. things. That's why I said this is very hard for politicians and the political system to manage. I did something that actually helped from a policy point of view that many other states didn't do. We passed a law in New York State where the governor has total authority for all these decisions over cities, counties, etc. In other words, a mayor or a county executive in New York doesn't make any of these decisions. I make all the decisions mm -hmm. for two reasons. Number one, I don't, this virus doesn't respect county lines or city lines. And I think it's very confusing when you have one day, this county executive says this, and this county executive says this, the city's open, but the county's closed. The county's open, but the next door county isn't open. You can't have a patchwork quilt and you can't have different elected officials taking different positions. Number one. Number two, I said I'll take the political heat because you're right, Larry. If you said every mayor has to tell the local Catholic church, mm -hmm. I'm closing your churches and tell the synagogues, I'm closing the synagogues, you know, nobody wants to do that. Uh, putting all the authority in the governor's hands actually made it easier because I'm willing to take the political heat to do it. Right. It's the right thing. And it overcomes the political system's resistance or tardiness in doing the right thing. Yeah. What's okay. Our final question, um, governor, this comes from a lady who says, assuming uh, Biden wins the election, and this will be a good thing, she adds, mm -hmm. this is not going to solve all the problems. Seems to me it will be the beginning of rebuilding the economy, continuing to fight the virus, and also improving race relations. But that is going to take Democrats and Republicans having to work together. What advice would you give, hopefully, an incoming President Biden towards improving that discourse? And what might you personally do to help him? Prayer works. Prayer works, Joe Biden. Uh, look, Joe, I know Joe Biden very well. 
Uh, I'm very fond of him on a personal level. We have a president now that has been pouring gasoline on the tensions of this nation. He didn't create the tensions, Trump. I wouldn't give him that much credit. He marketed the tensions. He's a marketing man at his, at his essence. And he saw the anger and he saw the racism and he saw the division. And that's what he, he used to become president. I believe that. Uh, Joe Biden, by his very personality, will have those tensions subside. He is a good and a decent man. He is compassionate. He is understanding. And he won't tolerate what this president tolerated. More anti-Semitism uh, in this country today than in modern history. Ku Klux Klan empowered to the point where they march without their hoods in Charlottesville, only under this president. Biden won't tolerate that, but Biden at the same time will be a, a more open, more inclusive president. And I think that's going to change the tone right off the bat. Working with Republicans, Democrats, that can happen. I had a Republican Senate here in New York State for two terms. We did a lot of good work together. Joe Biden has worked with the other side as senator for many, many years. Um, but the questioner is right. Uh, we have a lot of work to do uh, on all of these levels. And it's, it's going to be uphill. But uh, the fundamental point will be we have to stop fighting ourselves. Stop the division. Stop the tension. A divided country is a weak country. This virus is a great metaphor. The human body is attacked by many viruses during the course of the week. Uh, the problem is when your immune system is down low. That's when the virus wins. This virus attacked this country when our immune system was down low because we are divided and we are weak because of our division and weakened by our division. And that's why the virus won. And it's, it's preying on the division. And the division is incited by the head, I believe that, by the president. Uh, and Joe Biden, by his, by his spirit and his leadership, will start more of a unification. And that will, in and of itself, make us stronger. Well, he's certainly going to have a tough job in front of him. Uh, Governor, I really want to thank you for joining uh, Live LA Talks. This is the book, you guys, American Crisis. Um, these are leadership le lessons in this pandemic. These are lessons, as you know, for more than a pandemic. It's how to deal with any type of crisis. I want to thank you personally, Governor, for the leadership you've shown in this. Really appreciate it. And I wish the best to you and your family. Hopefully, someday we can have you live in LA itself for one of these talks one day when this is over. And uh, thanks for being on my own podcast, Black on the Air, simultaneously uh, too. Uh, everyone be safe out there, take care, and uh, you know, wishing you all the best. Thanks for being with us today on, on Live Talks Los Angeles. Thanks a lot, Gov. Thank you. Ted, thank you very much. Larry, thank you. Yes, all the best to you and to your family yes. too. Thanks Same again, here. Governor. Same here. Thanks a lot, Larry. A reminder again, the governor's book is American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, and it is available wherever books are sold.